Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? Even as wildfires burn and hot weather sets records in parts of Canada, there's another more remote but equally disturbing sign of climate change happening right now. Today, we launch our fall season looking at those spectacular frozen cloaks that drape around so many Canadian peaks. Glaciers. They're beautiful, iconic even, and they're shrinking. They have no resilience and cannot beat back the effects of warming temperatures and increasing carbon emissions. And while it's true they've long been part of this country's lore, what you might not know about is the impact shrinking glaciers have on people, on communities, where their meltwater is disappearing. The hunting patterns of our people are changing because we have to access new grounds now. A lot of our waterways are, rivers are low. We're going to have to start accessing new areas now because there's no other way to get down to a lot of this traditional territory. Growing concerns about receding ice also pushed one of Canada's career glaciologists to walk off his beloved frozen glacial fields and into the staid, sterile offices of the bureaucracy in Ottawa. So I didn't get out to my glacier this year, Peggy Glacier it's called, and this is the first year in, in 20 years that I haven't visited it, and I, and I very much missed it. Later this half hour, we'll hear more about why he took on a role as the first departmental science advisor with Environment and Climate Change Canada, and why he thinks this country can do more to curb emissions. For years you've heard that glaciers are melting. We know. The first published study we could find was from 1968. But in all the time that's passed, no one was really sure what happened to all the meltwater. The question sort of at the beginning of it was where is all the melt going from, from glaciers around the world? The, the models assume that um, as glaciers melt, the water is transferred to the oceans and that contributes to sea level rise. Um, some of it is intercepted by these glacial lakes and some of it goes into groundwater, but we really didn't know how much um, on a global scale is actually being stored by these lakes. That's Dan Sugar. He's a geomorphologist at the University of Calgary. And he just answered that question in a new paper published in Nature Climate Change. It found that those glacial lakes increased in volume by nearly 50% over the last few decades. That growth, largely fueled by climate change, means that potentially destructive floods will likely strike more frequently in the future as those swollen lakes break their banks. And if that isn't bad enough, Dan says other Canadian research on glacial melt shows a near peak in glacial water in the not-too-distant future. They expect that streams in western Canada, at least those fed by glaciers, will, um, will peak in discharge sometime between 2020 and 2040. So the next 20 years after that, we'll start to see declining uh, volumes of water in a lot of rivers in western Canada. We'll hear more about the on-the-ground impact of that melt in a few minutes from people who rely on glacial water. But Dan says in addition to the losses we'll see in real time, there's something more ethereal and profound at stake too. Glaciers are part of, they're part of Canada. They're part of the, the zeitgeist. 
And so I, you know, I think that's sort of an intangible thing that we're losing as we're losing those glaciers. That, of course, begs the question, does Dan think we're doing enough to act on climate change? Well, the, the, the short answer is no, not by a long shot. Part of the issue is that, you know, we, even if we were to cut our emissions to zero today, we still have so much in the atmosphere that we've, we've already bought into a certain degree, pun intended, of, uh, of climate change. And so we need to be doing far more than we already are. But he's not all doom and gloom. One of the, the very interesting things I think that we'll start to see in the next year or so are studies looking at the effects of COVID on CO2 and methane. And we have maybe, you know, if we want to think of it this way, a golden opportunity to drastically change our trajectory. And I hope we take it. Dan Sugar is an associate professor at the University of Calgary and the director of the Environmental Science Program. So as the glaciers continue their accelerated retreat, who feels the impact? The people of the Kluani First Nation, for starters. They live in Yukon, about 30 kilometers from the Alaska Highway, and right beside the shores of Kluani Lake. The lake used to be fed by the seasonal melt from the Kaskawulsh Glacier, water that traveled down the Ayachu Slims River into the lake. But the glacier has shrunk so much, it's changed course, meaning no more meltwater for the lake or the people living beside it. Bob Dixon is the chief of the Kluani First Nation. Hello, Chief Dixon. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. The water levels in the Slims River dropped quite suddenly in 2016. What was it like to see that happen? Traditionally, our, our, our water levels reached their peak in around mid-August. And when the levels didn't come up, you know, we were questioning where did the water go and what's going on here, right? It was kind of a shock to see our lake levels eight feet lower than what it should have been, right? Yeah, tell me about that. How dramatic was the change in the landscape? What were you looking at? So we're looking at docks that aren't sitting in water anymore. We're looking at 100 feet of beach line, you know, lower levels of water, and we can't have access to the lake anymore. Since the drop in the lake, you know, there's been huge attempts to try to um, fix some of these docks and fix some of the access to the lakes. The only accessible boat launch that we have to the lake is 40 miles from my community. And otherwise, people are trying to back into the lake on soft gravel lake banks and sinking their trucks and having a heck of a time, right? So last year... YTG did some work on um, the dock in Destruction Bay, which is 10 miles from here, and tried to dig it out, and that didn't do a very good job because, you know, we're still dealing with lots of um, lots of beach line. You know, the lake is way out from where it traditionally was. You, you mentioned the, the YTG, the Yukon Territorial Government. I, I'm wondering, has the government helped you at all with other issues that have arisen from this? Like, you, apparently you have dust storms. Our people here in the community notice a lot of dust coming down. The Ayachu Valley is 40 miles from Burwash, and we're still seeing dust down here at this end of the lake, which is a huge change. Never had that kind of change before. And on the highway, it must be even worse. The highway, um, you know, they get like four to six inches of dust built up on the highway at times. And I know YTG has been out there with a truck now with a plow on it and pushing the sand off of the road. A snowplow? The, uh, yeah snowplow in the summer. Pushing dust off the road. Yeah, pushing oh, dust off the wow. road. Wow. <laughs> it's crazy. It is. You have to kind of have a look at what's going on here and look at, you know, I always say, 
we're starting to create our own little desert that's being created here in our own backyard, right? Sand dunes and all of the sand that's blown into the area, right? You're right. A desert where none existed before. How are you adapting to the changes that you're seeing in your traditional territory? We've um, put some money aside to do some studies on the fish. And we're trying to see, like, the fish, um, where they traditionally used to live in the lake and where they used to spawn. And we're trying to find out, you know, if these things have been changed. I think they're changing. You know, the lake levels are so low. The spawning areas are changing. Um with this warm weather that we're having and the lake levels so low, our traditional use of the lakes have changed. And, and of course, with, because of the lake being more shallow, the water temperature must change. I guess that's why you're worried about it affecting the fish. Yeah, and that's some of the studying that's being done right now is water temperatures. That could all have an effect on why the ice is so thin so late in the year. And in the last few years, we've had like several... ATVs and snow machines going through the lake, a couple of trucks, uh, things that traditionally aren't normal here, right? People used to be able to drive around on the lake with heavy equipment and trucks, and now we're really rethinking how we um, how we use the lake, right, in the wintertime. So people have been falling through the ice? Yes. Terrible. Oh, wow, what a shock for everyone. Can you tell me what this summer's been like for you? This summer has been rain. We've traditionally, we um, don't see this much rain during the summer. It's rained almost every day here. A lot of our people, our citizens and members of our community, traditionally would go out and be picking berries, you know, and storing them for the winter. And what we're noticing is a lot of the berries aren't there anymore. And I think that's because there's just too much rain, you know, it's just, and that in turn, like, affects a lot of the wildlife um, bears aren't putting on enough weight, we don't think, for hibernation. And they're starting to come around the communities and looking for other ways to get food, I think, right? I'm wondering, though, does the rain actually help the level of the lake? Is that is that at least one kind of compensation? Uh, hmm. The lake levels have come up quite a bit this summer, but it's also having a, a negative effect on the other side. You know, we've had a couple of washouts this year. The mudslides have come across the Alaska Highway here. There's a lot of landslides out of our mountains that we noticed. Chief, it sounds like you're, you are actually on the front lines of climate change, and I'm wondering what it's like for you to see your community um, affected by it this way. You know, living up here in the Yukon, where we, we live a pretty traditional lifestyle, and we can see the climate change that's going on firsthand with the animals changing, the cycle of the animals you know, the mating season of the animals, um, animals are moving on because it's not cold enough, uh, not enough vegetation on the ground. And then um, permafrost melting, that's a huge challenge up here. The hunting patterns of our people are changing because we have to access new grounds now. A lot of our waterways, are rivers are low. We're going to have to start accessing new areas now because there's no other way to get down to a lot of this traditional territory except by the rivers or the lake. There's no roads in some of the country, right? Chief Dixon, I thank you so much for sharing your time with me. That's great. Thank you. Bob Dixon is the chief of the Kluwani First Nation in Yukon Territory, and his people aren't the only ones facing the challenge of glacial retreat. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel has been looking into what changes to glaciers mean for those who live downstream of the melt. Hi, Molly. Hi, Laura. So who have you been talking to? bunch of people. 
Um, one of those people is a scientist who studies glaciers, Michelle Copas. She's an associate professor at the University of British Columbia, and she's also a research chair in Landscapes of Climate Change. That's a title. I haven't heard that before. <laughs> I know, but um, I mean, she's she's literally studying these vast sheets of ice, right? Uh, and one of the things that she said to me really stuck with me after I heard Chief Bob Dixon. That's the big take home. Climate change in and of itself if we think about just changes in temperature, that's only the the starting point or the kind of the signal, but it's really about these cascading impacts and cascading effects of climate change from the source to the sink, you know, from the glacier all the way downstream. I really like that expression, source to the sink. It makes you really think about how far this all travels. And, and in this sense, Kluwani Lake is an example of how things are changing downstream. Kluwani Lake really illustrates this as well. I also really love that word cascading because for me, um, it's this great analogy. It creates this image, right? Because there's so many different ripple effects. We have springtime flooding. Dan Sugar talked about that. We have landslides like Joffrey Peak in BC in 2019. Um, and I know, Laura, you've reported on these issues before and you've seen this. I have. I, I, a couple of years ago, I stood on a glacier on top of Mount Meager, which is, is north of BC in the coastal mountains. And uh, I was there with some scientists who were measuring uh, the somewhat dormant volcano, but also the glacier because the glacier was melting. And the instability uh, of the of the rock underneath had meant that back in 2010, there was an enormous landslide from Mount Meager. In fact, it's now the biggest landslide in Canadian history. And they're predicting there, it, not that there might be another, but there will be another. So I, I can see the effects. Yeah, I've seen them myself up close. Oof. I mean, will be another, like these things are going to happen more often. Um, but it, it's not just the places that we live that can get damaged, you know, by flooding and landslides. Let's not forget about the critters that live in the cold water. Okay, critters. <laughs> I think you're talking about fish. Uh, Chief Dixon mentioned salmon. And in another episode that we did, we talked about that the fact that salmon species are starting to show up in unexpected places further and further north. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is you know, what's happening to the communities where salmon habitat is changing? Glaciers are part of that story. And there are communities in the central coast of BC that are seeing fewer salmon. You're actually talking about the Great Bear Rainforest on the central coast in BC. Yeah, exactly. And Butte Inlet is one of those communities in the Great Bear Rainforest. So this is an area where mountains meet the ocean and glacial melt also makes its way to the ocean. Darren Blaney is the chief of the Himalco First Nation, and he sees their glaciers melting and their salmon stocks declining. Our culture is just hanging on now. <laughs> you know, if we uh, keep losing more and more of our salmon stocks, then I think our, our culture is not going to be passed on. And, you know, the, the first salmon ceremony and all those things that our people used to practice will be gone. I mean, if the salmon are moving north, then... I can't see our culture lying on mackerel <laughs> or jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, he's laughing about it there, but it doesn't sound great. How, how hopeful is he that they actually will continue to see salmon there? To see salmon there in the future. I mean, he says that 
we have to change. And he'd like to see some bigger policy changes. But taking a look at what his own First Nation is doing, there is a salmon hatchery to help give the population a boost. And the money from that actually comes from tourism. So if you want to go see grizzly bears in the Great Bear Rainforest, great. But you have to pay a conservation fee to help actually take care of the salmon. They also want to expand that pool of money by creating a similar fee for the forest industry. Okay, that sounds smart. But even with this example, you can see how the impacts to the salmon reach far beyond the salmon because the salmon support the grizzly bears and the grizzly bears support the local tourism. Uh, I'm wondering, are there other species that need that, want that, like that cold water from the glaciers? Yeah, Ulican is another one of those species. Uh, Jennifer Walkus told me about them. She is on the council for the Owekanu First Nation. So that is also in the Great Bear Rainforest. And Jennifer has worked as the science liaison and a fisheries manager for the nation. Owekanu are a glacial fish. Like they need that cold water coming from the glaciers to survive. So when the glaciers are gone, it's not very likely the Uligan are going to be able to hang around. And Uligan are one of the largest, most culturally important species on the central coast. Jennifer told me that there is ongoing research there about the glaciers. And so what they hope to find out is exactly how quickly those particular glaciers are melting, because if they can find that out, that might give them a sense of what the future of Yulikin may look like. Um, Of course, to prevent glaciers from disappearing, we need to drastically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And the nation is working on that. They have a small source of sustainable power now. It's a run of river hydropower system. So that does not require a dam. It runs into the Awikanu Lake. It supplies energy to the community, and they use less diesel-generated power. Wow, that that is actually a really interesting solution. It's kind of like micro-hydro, <laughs> and it's climate-friendly. Yeah, exactly. It's a really small-scale solution, except there is a catch. It's also largely contingent on the glacier being there. If we get climate change that changes enough, that we won't have glaciers. It'll mean the mountains that right now we rely on snowpack is likely not, they're not gonna have enough of a snowpack to be able to power something like our run of the river generator. Okay, and that is interesting because while that is a small example, it makes me think about much bigger hydroelectric power projects of which there are several in British Columbia. And the question is, are those also gonna be affected by glacial melt? Yes. I mean, when we talk about glaciers melting, we're usually looking ahead a decade, multiple decades. But Michelle Copas told me that sediment from glaciers already affects reservoirs and dams downstream. But it is something that, for instance, BC Hydro has to think about because they build their dams for a 50-year time frame and they, they want to forecast out that amount of time. And so the changes that we're seeing in both the amount of water and the quality of the water impacts our energy needs. And that's something that everybody is impacted by. And I mean, with glaciers, that's really obvious, because we're talking about energy, drinking water, food, culture, flooding, landslides. I mean, it really is a cascade of impacts. It really is so interesting. Thank you, Molly. Thanks, Laura. Molly Siegel is a producer with What on Earth? Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, Plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on. Which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. So the risks are clear and present and in some cases pose significant danger. And that begs the question, what can be done to help reduce emissions and are we doing it fast enough? Remember Dan Sugar? He was the guy who did the study on glacial melt we heard about at the beginning of this episode. I asked him what he thought can be done. I'm putting on my thinking specs here. (laughs) I can see them. No. Yeah. Oh my God, that's a tough one. That's a really hard question. And, and one that, you know, one that as a scientist is, is probably really, or, or as a, as a, as a sort of an earth scientist is probably very tough for me to answer because I think that the answer is probably better suited to, to somebody who deals with policy. Now, we've promised listeners that we'll always search for solutions to the problems we investigate on this program. And in this case, is government the answer? Well, it turns out that about a year ago, Sean Marshall left behind his gig as a professor and glaciologist at the University of Calgary, and he took on a role as the first departmental science advisor for the Department of Energy and Climate Change, headed up, of course, by Minister Jonathan Wilkinson. And we've reached Sean Marshall in Ottawa. Hello. Hello, Laura. Pleased to meet you here. Um, I'm wondering, sitting in Ottawa on Zoom calls, doesn't exactly sound like as much fun as standing on top of glaciers. I'm wondering what led you to take that role on and step away from your academic role. That's a, that's a good image because that's exactly the two different lives at some level. And I'm, I'm some, there are some days where I'm missing my time on the glaciers far away from the, the politics. Um, but but um, I have this window where I'm in a career stage where I can try to understand a little bit better how the science policy world works and to bring more science to the table here where all these decisions are being made that um, affect our policies, affect, um, you know, how quickly we can really deal with questions like climate change. So I think it's it's the other side of the science, but it's um, something that I feel like um, I'm really strongly that there needs to be more science brought to the decision table. We've seen it a lot with, I think, some of the public health science being front and center in the past few months. And I, it's easy just to think of things like carbon pricing or electric vehicles or clean tech or things as nice to have. But when you're looking really hard and understanding really well what's, in my view, understanding really well what's happening to the planet, then it's, it's not really a nice to have. It's a need to have. And, and I think we need some of that urgency brought into some of our our policy advice. Let's get back to glaciers. You started your research on glaciers about two decades ago. How much was climate change part of the picture for you in getting out on glaciers to study them back then? It's it's pretty interesting because the first IPCC report, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, came, came out in 1990. And I was was an undergraduate student and it was sort of eye-opening. We we studied that that document in one of my classes and it was clear already then that climate change 
was happening and was was going to start to take off and that there was a big element of human agency in that and and so the scientists were talking about it and were aware of it but it wasn't the big burning question it is now maybe this was 30 years ago i went in to study glaciers more of scientific curiosity and interest they're fascinating things and how they how they work trying to understand things like ice ages all those things were great scientific questions to me and kind of maybe more of an old-fashioned natural sciences sort of perspective and there was a climate change context to it but it wasn't what i set out to study it's true you know scientists aren't supposed to become emotionally attached to their subjects but you do get pretty attached to these landscapes when you go back year after year to a particular glacier or a place in the mountains or a place in the arctic you seeing these changes seeing it melt under your feet you start to really kind of worry about it and want to know what's happening here and how you know how is this going to play out and how much longer is this going to be with us and what does it mean for sea level or water resources and all those questions start to occupy your mind and it just seemed more important to work on those kinds of problems. You sound wistful or almost sad about all of this. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean, I again, we're scientists are supposed to be objective and not become attached to their subject. But I, I, I guess I, I'm sometimes thinking about things in the past tense because glaciers aren't what they were even places I've studied in the Rockies for 20 years now it's a lot of that ice is is gone and it changes so much every year I, I think I kind of came into the world of glaciology thinking of these as permanent features in the landscape and the idea that they'll they'll disappear this century maybe does make me feel a little a little wistful it's true I'm wondering, you've touched on this already a bit, but when it comes to glaciers, what do you think policy can do that your career as an academic couldn't? It's pretty hard to intervene and develop policies that are going to directly help the glaciers. These are huge kind of global processes driving this. But anything in terms of climate change policy, thinking more medium to long term, let's take what we know we need to reduce emissions. We need to, you know, overhaul all sorts of our energy and transportation systems over the next generation to something that's going to be net zero in terms of carbon emissions. Um, you said that glaciers are, are the markers of climate change because they have no resilience. Are, are we acting fast enough uh, on climate change to prevent losing them altogether? Again, you've, you've touched on this to a degree, but can, can we act fast enough to prevent losing them altogether? Huh. I guess I would probably wouldn't have come to Ottawa if I thought that they were doomed already and it wasn't too late. <laughs> so I do I do believe that uh, we can stabilize the climate, that we can turn things around and get going on this. And any input to you know advancing that um, that I can make while I'm here with Environment and Climate Change Canada and with Government of Canada, we have some very direct control through you know our own climate change action we have a very direct influence on on future sea level rise on how much ice is is left at the end of the century and and uh i hope we make the good choices <laughs> i'm imagining that, that you have this fantasy <laughs> of uh, a minister of the crown coming forward and saying we're going to do this and this and this and we are going to do these measures that the scientists have been telling us to do to fight climate change um and i i, I so far that does remain what a seeming fantasy at the moment i wonder how frustrating that is for you when you mm, when you feel it's so urgent 
Yeah. No, it's such an interesting question. And, and, and I would say I do feel that way. And so many of my colleagues feel this way, but also I realize that's not how, how things work. And then it's a, it's a much more subtle and complex process than that. But, but sometimes I, I do think um, we've made it too hard, honestly, like there are, it's pretty clear what's happening now. Some of the solution pathways are pretty clear and I, I'd love to see more sort of courage and vision and, um, you know, maybe some nonlinear thinking just to like break out of, uh, of the, the cautious pathway where we're trying to keep everyone happy. There's, there's, I think there are steps we could take that could be decisive and visionary and disruptive. And so it'll, it'll be difficult a little bit, but, um, but I think we could get through that and looking back in a few years or 10 years time, we'd look back and say, you know what, that wasn't so hard after all. I've, I've mentioned, you know, replacing the vehicle fleet with hydrogen fuel cell powered and electric vehicles is something that's totally possible. It's technologically possible. It's just a huge choice in a way. And so it's like some part of me thinks, well, why don't we just do it? <laughs> you know, put in the infrastructure and invest in that and let's have a completely zero emission vehicle fleet in the next 10 years. Everyone's next vehicle is going to look that way. And it's, it's kind of, this would go a huge way towards helping with the problem domestically in terms of our, of our carbon emissions. Um, so yeah, you can think of things or I can think of things in my naive way that could help and we'd have lots of scientific backing, but to actually implement them, I realize is, is far more complicated and there's so many, economic sort of ripple effects from choices like that and i've i've come to better appreciate i guess that um that some of those some of those things are always going to trump the science or trump the environmental concerns but, but is, that right? could, is that right is that is that right i i think we can't we have to include those considerations but i also think that they shouldn't always be louder than the environmental concerns and i think we need to be thinking more long-term and that goes together with, uh, you know, putting more weight on things like climate change on the environment versus short-term economic disruption. And I, I really don't think we're being brave and visionary enough yet on that. I, I don't think it's right to compromise our children's planet for sort of short-term political or economic urgencies. But you still think you're in the right place, even with those views. You're in the right place you need to be right now. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like it's closer here than, than my work as a scientist. I feel like working as a scientist is, is a wonderful privilege. And I've had so much great opportunity to work with students and to work in beautiful places. And I've published with so many great international colleagues and and I, I still love that life there's still lots of good questions and I'll probably retreat to that life at some point um, <laughs> um, because there's lots of good science that I can contribute that way um, but I, I do think after 20 years of doing that at the University of Calgary I, I feel like I'm talking a little bit to the same people all the time and publishing in scientific journals that aren't widely read it's just you know we're kind of documenting the demise of the glaciers or if it's permafrost or sea ice it's all kind of happening and it's being very carefully documented and i can contribute more to that but 
but it doesn't need to be better understood really at the highest level what's happening that it's all so clear and here in ottawa i think it's it needs to be in another capitals in the world is where it needs to be more clearly understood and communicated and the urgency of it needs to be pressed and and i'm not the only one in ottawa that thinks that way but we just need more voices that are thinking long term and and just hammering on the scientific evidence to to really try to do things differently in some in some places i'm thinking you have a support group for all of the science advisors who have come to ottawa (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so interesting you say that i had a call the other day with um, my new zealand counterpart the the science advisor for the Ministry of the Environment at New Zealand, and we were commiserating and, and having like a little support network call <laughs> because we're experiencing very similar things of we're passionate about this. We really want to, science to be, um, you know, front and center and, and the scientific evidence to be, you know, a, a greater part of our, of our sort of policy direction and our political discourse and our conversation. But it's, it's hard to get in there when we're well, especially during a pandemic, but just in general, there's lots of day-to-day concerns that people have, and it's hard for them to care what the world's going to look like yeah. in the middle we... of the century. But but it's the role of government to, to care about that, because it's, it's if they're not going to, then who else can, you know? But there's an opportunity there, isn't there? Because we, we, we've actually, on this even on this program, we looked at the pause the pandemic has afforded us in terms of air travel and commuting slowing down. And the government has talked about a green COVID stimulus package. I'm wondering if you have any sense from where you are of what opportunity there is now to lead on decarbonization. I think there's a really interesting window now. That was actually also part of the conversation with the New Zealand um, uh, environment ministry science advisor because they're looking also at a green economy reboot and restart and is there a window here and what does it look like so i think there are there are opportunities there to to think differently which is what we need to do and to rebuild differently in some cases and okay. and again i think it's something we could look back on and say oh you know what that wasn't so hard after all have if, you if had anything, any conversations think... with mr wilkinson about that <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't have too many direct conversations with Mr. <laughs> Wilkinson, but but uh, but they're they're certainly discussing it at, at Environment and Climate Change Canada and at right up to Deputy Minister level, and they're they're really thinking a lot about how can we you know how and what can we do to, to kind of advance this. So that's a that's a big part of the post-COVID discussion right now in the department. And so yeah, I'm sitting in in lots of those Zoom meetings as you might imagine. Um, and there are opportunities there. I think one thing that the pandemic has been instructive in some ways, as hard as as difficult as this has been, is that we've saw so much change, behavioral change, just you know, within a few days in March. <laughs> and the, suddenly, the idea of you know investing in renewable energy or driving an electric vehicle in, instead of a gas-powered vehicle doesn't seem like a radical change. It doesn't. It's not going to impact your life nearly as much as this pandemic has impacted your life. So these kind of, uh, I don't know, general, generational changes that are needed might might not be as hard as we thought they were. So I'm hoping we get a bit of courage from this. Are, are those the kinds of conversations that you're having with your colleagues? We are. We're thinking a lot about um, clean. There's a lot of clean tech initiatives and there's been incentives for this for some, some years now. But it's a question of how to be mainstream some of that and to just move forward with this as the default rather than as maybe more fringe or 
or on the side activities and and there's tons of understanding of that and a huge wish to embrace that and move forward with it so it's a question of how can we how can we implement that in a way that is going to be disruptive but how can we make it so that we still have have our lifestyles and have our holidays and what are the sort of green solutions that reduce emissions and, and let us live comfortably and like in the in the manner we're used to and, and a lot of those are out there but they they need investment and they need to be brought up in scale maybe we need a, a dr Teresa tam or a dr bonnie henry <laughs> to to be the face <laughs> of talking about environment and climate change they they've had exactly that conversation you know they've watched and realized that, well there's a certain amount of trust and profile that goes with that it's wonderful to hear from in, you know, from Teresa Tam and get the updates and from all the provincial health ministers. It's it's great to see those, you know, real people that that understand it deeply, you know, communicating with, with public. And I, I think we do probably have have a need of of these kinds of people on, on some of our environmental and climate files. Sean Marshall, thank you so much. Thank you so much for covering this, Laura, and I look forward to the program. Sean Marshall is the first Departmental Science Advisor for Environment and Climate Change Canada. Now, we asked the Minister's office for comment on what Sean said. His press secretary sent us a statement, and in it acknowledged, and this is a quote, that more needs to be done to exceed our 2030 Paris target and achieve net zero by 2050. And it goes on to say, this is another quote, just like science is guiding us in our response to COVID-19, science will continue to guide us in our fight against climate change. And that does it for us this week. Thanks to the What on Earth team, associate producer Rachel Sanders, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our technician is Matthias Wolfson, our digital producer Althea Manison. Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.